This is episode number two with Kurt Fernley. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. Kurt is a five-time Paralympian and three-time Paralympic gold medalist. He's won 41 marathons out of the 67 marathons he started in and 18 other times he's been on the podium. Kurt is an author, motivational speaker, philanthropist and dad. Kurt was born without the lower part of his spine and without a sacrum, yet he still crawled the Kokoda Trail, won the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race and so much more. I've known Kurt for over a decade and in this chat I learned some things I wasn't aware of in his life and in his mind. In this episode we talk about when Kurt was born his parents were told to name him fast because the doctors didn't think he would survive. How important community and family is in his life and his success. I spoke to Kurt's parents the day before our chat and I raised some topics with Kurt that he's never spoken about before. He shares his reasons for his support around mental health and how this has affected him personally. Kurt tells us what impact means to him and how we can all become more impactful in our lives. And throughout all of Kurt's stories and journeys, he takes us deep into his resilient mindset. At the beginning of this chat, we're mid-discussion on an interesting incident that happened to Kurt during one of his marathons. Now, I thought it was the Sydney 2000 Paralympics Marathon, but he informed me after our chat that it was actually in New York, in uh, one of the New York marathons. So apologies from me for getting the bridge and the marathon mixed up. Nonetheless, the incident still occurred, and it's still a memory of mine when crossing bridges. So you'll hear that I stumped him a little bit at the beginning, and that's how we start this awesome chat. Now we dip into many of the key pillars of life, and in this episode, it will leave you wanting to conquer more in your time on this planet. You're an idiot. <laughs> you've, you've, you've got the wrong bridge. The, the, the bridge is... Uh, <laughs> look, I think in a marathon, your body is trying everything it can to make you stop. It's trying everything it can to um, to warn you that you're doing yourself a mischief because it's not, it's not healthy training. It's, it's ripping yourself apart. And over an extended period of time, and does, have they heard? <laughs> they don't even know what you said. You no, know, we don't. No one knows what you're talking uh, about right, here. Uh, yeah, mate. I, uh, I've, I'm proud of many things to do with racing. Um, if someone would have asked me whether or not I would, uh, the limits that I would push myself to, I wouldn't have ventured there. But 
What are you doing, mate? <laughs> now, speaking of pushing the limits, uh, what we're actually referring to here is in Kurt's book called Pushing the Limits. So we don't have to talk about it too much, but there's a great story about the middle of the marathon in the Sydney 2000 Paralympics. And there was a little incident as he was crossing a bridge. And every time I cross that bridge in Sydney, I have a good laugh when I think about it. So I appreciate that. Thanks, mate. No worries. Mate. <laughs> when I was doing it, I just thought, you know what, it's going to entertain, you know, you crap on your pants. Is uh, it's it's got to have a bit of laughter in it. <laughs> <laughs> now, Kurt, we're uh, here in your family home, uh, where I've shared some dinners with you before. I've actually stayed the night. I've been here a few times, and uh, I'm grateful to be here in your joyous company. I'm actually just turning around and looking at the space over there. And I remember vividly teaching your son, Harry, how to take his first steps. <laughs> you did. You swooped in and we had been speaking about that he's ready. He's almost ready to, to walk. He's, um, uh, he started to stand up. He, he'd been running around with my wheelchair. He'd used that as a bit of a, a guidance. But then all of a sudden, you're sitting over there in the corner with him, standing in the corner with him. He grabs hold of your hands and then he... He wanders away, takes his <laughs> takes his first two or three steps. Um, that was a it's been some. You know, I've always had my home as my home, as in back at Carcall. But now, when you when you put kids into a place, and this is the only place that Harry will have known, and you know we plan to be here for a long time, you can understand how those those places become pretty special to you. Absolutely, and, and we're going to talk you about... You swooping in and stealing the moment. <laughs> oh, you're the well, best I... running coach in the world. <laughs> if I can coach uh, athletes with amputated limbs how to walk and run, I would hope that I can coach a young kid how to walk. I could imagine him looking up to you and go, this is heaps easier. Dad's just been, you know, he's been <laughs> running me down the garden path. <laughs> we'll come back to all the community stuff uh, as we move forward. So we've known each other for, since 2006 actually, 2006 World Championships in Aspen in Holland and that was actually my so I was a full-time staff member as a soft tissue therapist you were there as an athlete that was also the first time I ever watched a marathon ever let alone a wheelchair marathon and I still remember watching you win that marathon in Assen and my reward for your win was uh, I don't know if you remember this but we took you upstairs to the hotel bath we didn't have any portable ice baths then and myself and the other physiotherapist we uh, chucked you in the bath and we were rubbing ice all over you we were your ice massage therapist I can't remember. Who it was Luke. Yes. Yeah. Like that games. That was the. I'd never been world champ before, and I'd won in Athens. I'd won the marathon and the five k. Um, I'd never made a. Oh, I'd never made a podium for a fifteen hundred meters before. Um, I won two golds on the track, and it was the same week that Peter Brock passed, and also Steve Irwin passed. Correct. And the marathon had the course tour had shown the marathon to be going on footpaths crossing onto bike paths you were up and down and round there were through cobblestones and I remember someone said that it always comes in three and I was a goner and that marathon was my peak heart rate 213 I finished at the back of that race I've never been able to get back to it 213 213 beats per minute right on the finish well, that explains why I, I wouldn't have been surprised if you didn't remember us icing you down in the bath because when we were, I was actually taken aback about how shaky you were and how much damage you just done your, to yourself to yeah. make sure you got that victory. Mate, I remember the last 600, I was actually behind. Heinz had taken off 
from I was following a Japanese athlete and I was sitting on his right and Heinz got a breakaway on the left. So I had to close that breakaway, make sure that Sawajima, Mazazumi didn't follow me and then attack and I attacked early and um, because of that early attack, my heart rate was already through the roof and then it was just hold on, hold on, hold on. And, um, yeah, that was the, that was the, that was the, 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 the peak of the old, I've, I've got it up to 210 since then, but 213 was a lot of damage and that was a good, that was a great world champs actually. That was a lot of fun. And you were a bit of a, uh, blabbering mess at the end not not in tears but just you couldn't even string a sentence together you couldn't even talk to us as we were icing you down there you really do punish yourself to get these victories don't See, you i remember i remember the ice bath i don't remember how i got there was it up a couple of was it up a lift did i have to go yeah, upstairs yeah, yeah no okay. we all we all jammed you in a in a lift yeah, and okay. squeezed in yeah i yeah i i I don't have a huge amount of memory i know that we had the uh we had the podium was actually in the town center and there were a ton of people there. Um, it was a brilliant atmosphere. It was great, actually. And that's what the marathon, that's one of the reasons why the marathon attracted me so much to it is that it is a little bit different to the rest of the events, that traditionally the medals were given at the closing ceremony and um, the, 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 the actual track, you cover the, you cover the course and the, the, the terrain of the city. And uh, I, I, I kind of, I fell in love with it in 99 2000 um in that build up um because it just is a little different it engages people in a different way and when people hear that you do a marathon it's like um it challenges their perception of what you do moving forward from 2006 we were teammates in 2008 beijing paralympic games 2012 paralympic games and then last year at the 2016 Paralympic Games, where you were actually team leader uh, alongside the beautiful soul of Denny de Toro. What was it like to be at maybe your last Paralympic Games? I won't completely put it out there. But at that level, that having competed that many times as a team leader and being the inspirational role model for all the young ones coming through, how was that experience for you in Rio? I, I, I loved it. I loved it. Um and speak to us about the mob. So first first and foremost, it, it came around at a really nice time. The I remember seeing team captains back in Athens um, and I wasn't really sure of what the role was or, or maybe it was Sydney. Um, but then speaking to both Chef de Mission, Kate, and, um, and Denny about what we wanted that role to be and... It was a real, the hopeful of a connection between past and present. It was engagement with the for the for the better health of our athletes, the more the greater level of comfort and support for our athletes. You know, had I had I have done it, been a part of it ten years ago, I I wouldn't have understood it. I don't think I wouldn't have been able to run with it as much because I I genuinely think that. My role there as one of the captains with Denny was a role of care where I think it would have been seen previously as a role of motivation or performance, uh, seen it that the captain must be firing them up and, and I don't see it that way anymore. Me as an athlete, me as a person um, and having hung around with Denny, 
when we got there, it wasn't our job to fire the guys up. It wasn't our job to, to tell them or give them expectation on the field. It was expectation off the field. It was who you are, what you represent, that we care about. And you're Jimmy, James. James Turner. Love him to death. I don't love him more the day after he won the gold medal than I do love him the day before. I think he's one of the most decent people that I've ever met. He And, and I love him because... For the entire two weeks of comp, or before comp, he would hug me every time I saw him me go by. For he would he would do these dances just for a chuckle, you know. And and the other guys like I said, hold uh, whether or not she came first or second, she was she was second by a meter in the games. There, she is no less impressive than what she was, you know, before when, when she was world champion. She is she is she is unique because of how she approaches her life and what she's done to get where she's she she is and even with with Denny Denny made it to the final not never she never she never was able to she wasn't able to win a game in the table tennis but I'd go to war for Denny because of who she is because we she she loves the idea of people just being better humans at the end of their Paralympic career and people leaving the sporting arena feeling like they have accomplished it regardless of their result. So I wouldn't have been in that sp- space probably 10 years ago, but I really think as a, if you are in the leadership of a team like that, the coaches will look after performance. The performance will be done uh, as in the, the, the anatomical or the physical or the fire-up will be happening before you enter into that village when you're there I know that I needed safety and I needed to know that the people around me, um, they didn't, um, I don't know, that I didn't find myself feeling isolated in amongst a million people, which is what I felt previously. I felt really isolated even though I was surrounded by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of my teammates. We wanted to make sure that 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 wasn't an issue in our team and, you know, Hopefully, hopefully we progress with that. And so the mob mentality is around that community, that family, that bonding within the team. Yeah, so mob is uniquely Australian as well and mob, you know, relates back to, you know, thousands of years of Australian heritage of of a a group of people looking after each other Mm. and making sure that we we were able to progress through it together and – uh, that's at the end of the day, what we tried to make sure is that everybody knew that there were people there to try and make them feel comfortable and that we valued who they are and that they were that their results wouldn't dictate how they were seen within our mob. You know, a community may see it differently, the outside world may see it differently, your coaches may see it differently, but our job, that's that wasn't that wasn't what we were there to do. Our job was make sure that you understand that you're a part of an amazing movement and regardless of what you come away with at the end of the day we see you as the same person we saw you last week and the majority of the team they're our family and we you know we appreciate who they are and you know we love being associated with them and from my perspective from a coach's perspective that's exactly how it was portrayed because there was none of that motivational we're here to fire up type talk it was more around that bonding and people like James that you talked about and I know that you roomed with him he's just one example but 
the way that the other younger athletes were speaking about you guys as leaders and as captains, that's what they saw in it. They weren't seeing these motivational, uh, get some energy type people. It was, wow, these these guys are actually there to support us. They're, they are like family. They are our mob. So you played it out well. Thanks, mate. <laughs> well, when we were talking about it, I thought, what if I had Harry in this team, if I had my young bloke in the team, if he's 14 or 15, who do I want around him? And I want someone around him that, that cares. Brilliant. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell us about when you were born. So being born at hospital. Yeah, it was a bit messy. As a bit of a rarity, I believe, to yeah. the doctors. Take us back to that time. Um, so that was back out in Cowra. Um, I was the youngest of fifth, uh, five kids. My mum had assumed that the pregnancy was was normal so that that she hadn't sought medical intervention because there was no real need. She was an old addict thinking the fifth time around it's going to work the same. All of them were low-risk pregnancies. So um, there were no indicators that I was I was who I was. So it was a bit of a shock. And the assumption was because I came out, uh, I'd, I'd had both my legs were broken because I was a breech birth. Uh, so the doctor to pull me out had to, had to break both. There was some hip um, problems because of it as well. So I was in a lot of discomfort. And um, I think mum said I was blue. Um, and there was a fairly quick rush to make sure that I was named because I think the assumption was that I wasn't going to be around too long. Um, but they found out later that I had lumbar sacral genesis, uh, that there's it was one a year since me that I've known across New South Wales. So it is pretty rare. It's linked to but not confirmed as an association with uh, sugar levels during pregnancy, but it's still a little bit uh, up in the air. It's a little bit contested. Uh, look, it's the first time my parents had ever interacted with disability before. I think they were, thankfully, they... They went in there with a bit of a clean slate. And uh, if I would describe anything of the upbringing from that point on was they just backed themselves. They had instincts of what they thought were going to work with me and they 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 backed themselves that they would know better than the medical fraternity or, you know, any other any other industry that decided that they were going to have input in how I should be raised. And that raising happened in a small community of Karkor, which is smaller than where I'm from in Cobar. Cobar, you mean the suburb of Dubbo, <laughs> Cobar. Um. For those listening, especially international <laughs> listeners, Cobar is 300 kilometres away from a city <laughs> called Dubbo, but Kurt uh, insists that Cobar is a suburb of Dubbo because Dubbo <laughs> is the nearest city, <laughs> even though it's 300 kilometres away. <laughs> I so know. I guess we can call Karkor a suburb of Orange or yeah, Blaney? Uh, <laughs> oh, you could call it. Karkor would refuse, but you could call it. Mate, I can't remember how that came about. I think you said Cobar one time and I was like, oh, yeah, that's near Dubbo. And because you said, no, it's nowhere near Dubbo, I thought, no, it is. <laughs> yeah. No, it is now. From now on, it's a suburb of Dubbo. Um, uh, yeah, it's a tiny town, great little town. My family, uh, my dad's my dad and mum are still in it. It's the same house that my grandfather, when he came over, he used to live about, gee, I'd say about 8K out of Karkor. Came over at 14 and he would... I think he would ride a, a horse and cart, a horse and buggy into work 
and he would pass this little patch of land every day and when he found he married my grandma and they were still living out there but he saw it and said he wanted it and he was going to buy it and eventually it did come for sale and he did buy the little parcel of land and it's still there today and there's still fernleys on it and hopefully it'll it'll stay there for good because he was him and his little brother jack were the first ones to make their way out there and it's nice to know that that tiny little patch of land was a creation of a 14 year old's desire to look after his his family when his dad was uh, lost during world war one and that's passed through the generations is the family history at Carcor. and how was it for you then growing up in that small community with a disability and how was it for your family well the Look, I always, I grew up with this idea that it was a privilege to be a Fernley. So they, all the uncles, all the, all the uncles, all the cousins really made me feel as if it was a, it was a real positive thing to be a part of this unit. It was such a tight family and, and I would see my uncle Terry, who's, who we lost a couple of years ago. He was more, he was, he's probably a cousin of, uh, but I always just knew him as, my uncle because he was the same age as all the other bloody uncles. There were a dozen of them. And um, I grew up so proud of seeing him coach Australia in rugby league and and just, I don't know why, they were these really larger-than-life characters who I just thought it was such an honour to be associated with. And they never made me feel different ever i always just felt valued and tough for some reason they always made me feel like i was really strong um my brothers also they never made me feel even if we were blue and you know even if there was the bloody fight of a lifetime they never made me feel ever as if the disability was a burden they when i was crawling onto a bus and my brother would pick up that wheelchair. Even again, we would be fighting hammer and tongs at the bus stop. The second I'd get out and I'd start crawling to the back of the bus, he would pick up that wheelchair, carry it on board and put it down and, you know, like, and he'd get me off at the other end. There was a certain thing that he never made me feel like it was, um, that there was any other, any other way but to make sure that I was a part of life and I didn't value it as much as what I should have and... I I think it's taken me 10 years after leaving home or you know, 20 years after leaving home, but I learned a while before that that, you know, they just, they never, ever would allow me to feel that my disability, not being able to work was a vulnerability, never. And what about schooling for you in a small place like Karkor? It was great. Half of the bloody school were families, so you didn't really experience any huge well and the other half were as close as family you knew every everyone's mum and dad you basically called the money and uncle and you know like it was a really tight little little group um and you know they just made sure that i was a part of it thankfully i didn't go through segregated education uh, which was still fairly common back then i was able to go into mainstream schools and and I did find myself as captain of the primary and then captain of the high school. I did find myself to those those leadership roles. Um, but it was pretty 
pretty simple old childhood. What about in terms of teachers? I've heard you talk talk about, is it Miss Dixon? Dicko, yeah. Yeah. How much of an influence was she for you at that period? I think I studied education because I benefited by teachers asking questions that not all would. So I benefited by people who, and that's how I value a good teacher as well. A good teacher is going to not just create the best student, but to assist in the person becoming the person that they're meant to be. And, you know, you can, we could put an Android in front and teach kids two times two, but you've got to actually teach them the, the, the ability to be able to problem solve and kids learn better when they're engaged with people that they respect and if they feel that they are they are cared as well if there's a teacher that really you you feel that they care for you you put in more effort and i benefited from some really good teachers dicko invited out wheelchairs to my school before i'd really experienced what my community had to offer i was happy as hell just crawling around the hills of Karkor, but she introduced me to a life that I couldn't have imagined the the life that I've been able to kick around for the last 20 years is, you know, how do you? So she introduced you to the wheelchairs. She brought wheelchairs to the school at Carcourt, did she? Yeah, she she brought a a roadshow to the school from Wheelchair Sports New South Wales and brought a guy in a wheelchair, Jerry Houston his name was, and I got in his basketball chair and played ball and um, just loved it. Put my family in the wheelchairs as well and... Then she made a phone call to Wheelchair Sports on another time and invited out Andrew Dawes to the school to teach, see if he could teach me how to push it, a racing chair. And I would have been 14, I'd say, at the time. And Dawesy, who just happened to be living, he had grown up at Orange, not far from Carcor. Um, he was coming home that weekend, dropped in at the school, took me for a few laps around town and um, also just changed the way that I thought the wheelchair you would push the wheelchair and, and so those two phone calls one one set me on a path of sport real sport even playing field sport the other set me into a relationship with the coach who has seen me through 20 what's it's 90 23 years or so of racing so Every andrew step. Dawes has been coaching you since then 23 years sure has yeah the relationship that you spoke about with Miss Dixon, Dicko, and that influence from teachers, and you mentioned there. So you studied PDHPE, correct? And what's your experience been like uh, with the little bit of time that you've done in teaching? I've, I found that I related really good to kids that didn't feel like they related to um, mainstream learning. So I did a lot of my prac work out in uh, Walgett, in did some out at Blaney as well. Spent some time in Campbelltown, Campbelltown High School, uh, Performing Arts School. Did some teaching out at Ungary and, and West Wyalong area. Um, small, small amounts. Look, and now I still try and get into the classroom, but more on a. I really love engaging with those kids that feel like they don't belong a little bit. Um, I feel like I've got the most to offer to those kids. Um, purely because there was a big period of time during school where I felt like I was just so different and there was another, there was, there was nothing really that I related to. And, um, 
And I learned just how, and also Dicko probably told me something that I found really valuable. And that was just, I'm not, I'm not the culmination of my mark at the end of year 12, you know, the mark at the end of the year is irrelevant really because she saw a drive and said that the drive in me was the most important thing. And if you get a kid with drive, they'll find their way into wherever they need to be. It's not about, you know, the 99.9% at the end of the end of the exams will give you shortcuts, will give you um, uh, quicker options, will be more convenient. But, you know, I'd back that kid with drive and with, with smarts to be able to find their way to university, to be able to find their way into their industry, to be able to find whatever it is out there that is their calling. And, and that, being told that from a person who wasn't a member of my family was valuable. And I feel like part of my job is to get in there and tell those kids who need to hear that, that, that there's options, that, that you may feel like you're being smashed in this setting, but life isn't this setting, you know, like you get outside of school and it's hell, the guys that are used to doing it hard will thrive in life because the school setting can be a bit controlled and, you know, the, the, the cool kids won't be the cool kids when they step outside. It's, it's a brand new world out there and intent and desire and drive that'll make you. I'm going to take you back to Rio last year and the opening ceremony. I was pushing a wheelchair. <laughs> Sorry, I just remembered. I was pushing a wheelchair and for the listeners, it was a wheelchair, uh, it was a spare chair and I was pushing it for, there was a couple of cerebral palsy athletes that are ambulance athletes, they can walk, but what a lot of people don't realise is before an opening ceremony, there's lots of hours of standing around, walking before you actually get to the stadium. So me as a coach, I wanted to save the legs and the energy of my ambulance athletes and so I... I got a spare chair and uh, they were taking it in turns of sitting in it and I'd push them along and or they could have a push themselves. And this was all for the hours leading into before we actually went into the stadium for the opening ceremony. And they'd already said to me, look, we want to, we're happy to walk the opening ceremony part. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I was going to be pushing an empty wheelchair in and I was by your side pushing the chair and, uh, and your coach Andrew Dawes and Reed McCracken, another athlete. And you were on to me. You said, Robbo, get in the chair. You've got to push out in the chair. When you come into the stadium, when they announce Australia, you've got to get in the chair. You've got to push it. And I was, I was a little bit sceptical. I thought, oh, I don't know if I should. I don't know if I should. And you said, just do it. Come on. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. I said, you know what? It will be fun. I'm going to do this. And I jumped in and we did push out together. And it's the fourth Paralympics I've been to as a staff member, but it's the first one I've ever been. <laughs> sat in a wheelchair and pushed it. And I had a blast. You and Reid and I had a little bit of a race down the home straight in the stadium and things like that. And it wasn't that well received, to be honest. There were some people that were watching it and you know, some people back home might have thought, geez, Robbo stole someone's wheelchair. There's a poor <laughs> bugger sitting back there that can't do the opening ceremony. But some people knew it was a spare chair and they still had the perception that uh, the thought around the f- that it wasn't right that I was sitting in a chair. And I brought this up with you not long ago when we, when we caught up and you made a couple of comments. Um, we're having a laugh about me sitting in the chair for the opening ceremony. And then you made a couple of comments around how disappointed you were that people would actually uh, compare the fact that I was doing an opening ceremony in a wheelchair and that they didn't like it that I was sitting in a wheelchair because it makes you, it made you feel like they're sort of saying, well, if you're in a chair, like there's, there's a bit of pity around that. Well, what's the, what's the issue? 
one of my mates jumped in a wheelchair with his other mates who were all in wheelchairs and pushed into the opening ceremony. You know, I, I just think I don't understand how there is anything offensive about that. It's not, yeah, the people that, the people that, uh, that take offence, oh, you can't sit in a wheelchair, it's patronising as hell. Uh, most of the, some of the most impressive people I know use wheelchairs and they, they may not use it full time. They might jump in it for, for just their sport. You know, like, and I would have. I just saw an empty wheelchair, and I thought, you know, what? Well, jump in, like, it'll be, it'll be bloody, it'll, it'll be one of those moments that you sit there and speak about for, for when you're done and dusted. I mean, remember that time you jumped in a bloody chair and we pushed around the for the opening ceremony? Bloody fantastic! And for people to take any sort of offence out of that is, it's just beyond me because there's nothing offensive about getting in a chair. There's nothing negative about being in a chair. It's a it's a mobility aid, and it's a part of like it's it's just, it, for me. As soon as I hear people feeling like something wrong had happened there, I just feel a bit yuck because it's it's not a negative thing. It's not a it's it was a it was a good mate of mine pushing around in a wheelchair with the rest of his community and mates who are also in chairs. I just, I can't see any offence in it at all. Well, and that leads me to how you've been approached in life many times when people might say to you things like, oh, what happened to you or poor you in a wheelchair? Like they think that there's something wrong with your life because you're in a chair. Talk to people, me about people pity. People talking about uh, they see you out on a, on a run and you, well, good for you. You're getting outside. Good for you. You know what I mean? Like, oh, give me a break. Like, the chair is the chair. Mobility, it's the least interesting thing that you have. Mobility, it, like, how you move around, how you get from A to B, just bloody, it's it bores me, you know? Like, let's look at people with a little bit more substance than whether or not they walk to the seat or they roll there or hop there. Who gives a crap? And... If you are walking and you decide to jump in a wheelchair when you're at the Paralympics, when you've been around mates of yours who have been in, if you decide to push around there, bloody welcome to the club, mate. Like, just come on. (laughs) And, you know, I know that it's it's all about intent as well. And, like, I I looked forward to seeing your old girl and, you know, I'm sure that she would have had a chuckle about it. And it was just... You know, it was fun and games, but we have we have a real issue in community with our expectations of where disability sits, because we look through it with all of this fear. We have people that see this, see any disability, and they just see it as immediately when they put themselves in it, they feel fear about how they would handle it, and. When you see people going through anything tough, um, we almost idealise it, that they're amazing, they're so tough, they're amazing. A lot of the time, people just deal with whatever the hell they've got to deal with. And I can guarantee if you broke your back, you'd deal with it. You'd figure out a path to life, you know what I mean? Like, it's we're not idealised, we're just normal people functioning humans and 
when people either get idealized or pitied, we just we, it's it's disabling for us. We don't we don't get to become your normal everyday peers in your office, in your workplace, which we need. We need normality. And you are not just an inspiration and role model around sport. Uh, you are very outspoken around disability and these sort of issues. And outspoken? No, I'd say I'm, uh, I'm perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't say outspoken. You are a voice around it. So you are an advocate for disability, things around the National Disability Insurance Scheme and and I think even just chats like this to expose people to what it is like to live with a disability because there is a perception in society around that pity that people aren't exposed to. Uh, yeah, so working with the NDIS, I loved. I really loved doing that. Um, and for me, the athletes that I really respect are the ones that put morality in the front of the craft, the sport, because if you find yourself at a stage where you're given the opportunity to get into the lounge rooms of people with sport, then if you don't speak with substance, you've made the grand final and you haven't turned up. You've got a profile to create some sort of challenge or change within community. If you don't do it, what a missed opportunity because they will be the valuable things that you reflect on. How many gold medals do you bloody... You don't... You don't see them, you don't put them up. Like I just, there is intrinsic value there and you do get a certain level of value because you are able to create a platform that people um, respect the discipline to be able to get them. But when you're there, you have the ability to talk substance and talk real positive things that, that can influence community that's the memorable stuff and that's the at the end of the day that's the stuff that I'll be most proud that I was a part of um I just think that I'm a bit of a true believer in sport is that it just opens up so much for community to speak about and it gets kids from really challenging positions whether it is rugby league or rugby union or or afl or swimming or athletics some of those kids are from the poorest communities of of our country they find themselves in the middle of the middle of the uh, highest profile uh, moments in sport if you would have given them the guidance that the things that you do off the field are as important as the things that you do on the field i reckon we'd cut down a lot of the junk that we see because those guys could just, you know, they, they, they're told so frequently or they're, it's pushed on on them so frequently that their only value is on the field and it's a lie, like it's a lie. When, when they get told that they can't speak about things when they get off the footy field, when they, when they get chopped down for having an opinion on that and then you wonder why they go out and they get on the gear on a weekend uh, to play up, you know what I mean? Like if, you, if it's if it's imprinted on these athletes that that's all their value is we're going to have massive issues when they stop because they'll have associated themselves with a physical sport and just that how do we get them functioning members of our community how do, how do they i just 
I can't emphasize enough how how important it is, I believe, that athletes engage with where they've come from and learn that they have the ability to impact community far greater than the result of their sport. Well, a lot of your substance also comes from what you've done outside of sport. So you've conquered so many marathons, but beyond that, you've conquered the Kokoda Trail. I conquered me a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, mate. Those things that happened outside of sport, they've been... They've been adventures that I could have never imagined that, that would would take place or could take place. Sydney to Hobart, yeah, the yacht race that was unbelievable, and I got a fair bit of pushback to not do that in the beginning as well. But at the end of the day, again, you sit down and you remind yourself of what you're doing, and the sport is a massive part of it. But your your ability to be able to give be given these crazy opportunities out there on the fringe of expectation of what anyone would imagine disability to be able to be a part of. When you do get given those opportunities, you've got to do them, you've got to smash them so that so that we drag mainstream community across from that, that piss poor expectation and, and drag them across with us because, you know, you get told on a bloody weekly basis that you're amazing for for opening a door, for driving a car, for wanting to have a family. You know, like you hope that if somebody sees that race or somebody sees Sydney to Hobart or if someone sat down and watched Kokoda, maybe, maybe they wouldn't, they would treat the next person with a the disability they see as a peer rather than an object of... of pity give us a glimpse of what the sydney to hobart was like just a little snapshot Uh, so this is you on a yacht as a member of the crew sailing so you crawl you you i can't i think i put the chair on with me because i remember being nervous and thinking i don't know why i just need to see it it's useless to me the wheelchair on the boat is useless. The, the, the wheelchair <laughs> under the boat. It's useless to me on the boat. But I know that we either we either trained with it. I can't remember whether or not I actually took it on the actual race. Um, uh, it was you're just you're on this. I'm trying to think of what it would be. Roller coaster, a hundred foot roller coaster. With no belts. Your fingertips are on the on the on the carbon fiber on the on the sheeting across the top of the deck and you are just clamoring and doing whatever you're told you're a tiny little cog you're you're a part of a group and your job's broken down so finite so so to such small degrees that you just you remind yourself of what you've got to do and you just try and smash it every single time and it's you know you might be on for five minutes right now but that five minutes is part of a three-hour block that you've you're actually doing your job and and then that is part of another six hour block where you're you're on call but you're not working and then you've got your three hours off and that's 58 hours worth of crawling and there's there's waves crashing over the top there's vomit covering the deck you stink because you've tried to take a pee downstairs and uh you know you're you're rocking around that much that you've you've bloody half pissed yourself it's it's just it's a bit of a torturous 
amazing experience. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was a moment where you're sitting there in the middle of the dark and you're tethered on 99% of the time, but to do your job you have to untether and run backwards and forwards and do things. Middle of the night, half of our crew is seasick, so there's probably only three of us above deck and you're doing something, diving from one side of the yacht to the other and it's on a tilt and then this wave crashes over the top of the, the top of the boat and you see it coming towards you and you're grabbing hold of a pole and you're thinking, have I tethered on, have I tethered on, what am I doing, the wave hits you and then you just go, this is, uh, this is the best thing in the world. This is living, this is, this is finding something on that fringe, being beaten up by it and, and backing yourself that you will just roll with it and you will just, you'll rip, you rip it apart. It was awesome actually, it was crazy. I'm picturing one of those movies where the boats are just rocking around and getting thrashed and people getting thrown all around the boat. You make me feel like I'm a part of your movie right now when you explain it like that. <laughs> well, you, you jump, it was amazing, man. And such good people on there. We raised a million bucks for kids' charities. We won the race. And, you know, I've got this tiny little medal packed away somewhere that's Sydney to Hobart, line honours victory. How do you, how do you... How do you explain that in 50 years? The metal can't do it justice. I would rather people no. be exposed to this story in this movie that you've just put us through. <laughs> Mate, metals have their place usually in boxes. And <laughs> so from the sea to the land, the let's just the unpack uh, Kokoda a little bit because for those international listeners, Kokoda is 96 kilometres and uh, it's very arduous terrain and took you 11 days, is that right? And you crawled the Kokoda Trail. How did that come about? And tell us a bit about the experience. Look, it was a, the opportunity to spend 11 days with the people who are the, the closest people to me in the world. They are my brothers and cousins and I grew up in this environment where they hemmed into me that I was, you know, that I that I was this valued member of community and that I could speak and ask for help when needed, that there was, you know, there was, there was no time where I was this burden and those, those ideas. And I think that I, we really, I really wanted to make sure that everyone understood how much I appreciated it, but also that I think I had learnt how valuable, how valuable that had been for me, that I know that I'm stronger because I am able to look for help. There's no weakness in that. That I am able to be comfortable with the people around me and know my vulnerability and, and, and share those moments that I'm vulnerable, that I need to, to get that help. I only see strength in that. We as a, we as a person, me as a family member, me as a, a, a team member, um, I just wanted to make sure that my family always, uh, they always understood how much I appreciated that knowledge and then, they understood that it was all right to ask for help back and and really mate you grow up so close to people as kids that you all go off in different directions and you just you never get to you never get to be a part of that setting again and that was a a pretty special time to relive those moments you know yeah for me i just yeah i just wanted to make sure that that they understood how much how much I um I appreciated them and and love them and enjoy spending time with them and that they knew that we're there for each other really. Speaking of family, uh, I know your parents quite well. They were at the end of Kokoda to welcome you and surprise you. Is that right? 
They were. So Dad had his spleen removed. So that means that he can't go to countries that has uh, the, the, a high um, a likelihood that he may get, uh, I think malaria will kill him, something like that, or he can't take malaria meds. So he was never going to come. But I don't know how long they had prepared for it, but they were there at that. I was corner when I was able to get back in my chair again. It was just like a, it was one of the most emotional, emotional things that I've ever done. And yet you have no idea the impact that it was going to make. I had no idea that people, people were watching it and feeling it. Um, it wasn't until I got back to the hotel and just everything was crazy. There were TV and radio and people piling out of the front of the hotel and phone was going off for the next 48 hours, hell, the next two weeks. Um, it was just really overwhelming how how big that got. What is it do you think that people took from it? We're all crawling through mud. We're all dragging ourselves through stuff. Mine was extremely visible. I think people, maybe the people that had heard the story went to work that day and they were dragging themselves through the day-to-day mess of what life and work can be. And then they probably read an article about a bloke who's currently sitting in the middle of PNG crawling through 96 k's of mud again. And um, I think there's not much more relatable than someone doing it hard because we all do it hard. Everyone's everyone's dragging themselves through something at some point in time. And for me, when I get home from Kokoda, I try and get across just how essential it is to be able to look around and ask for help. And that's, there was a guy on the track, Porter, name was Mac. I, he, he, he was everything. To so he was a porter from Papua New Guinea? From Papua New Guinea. He elbowed my, my family out of the road and said that I know he's your brother at home, but he's my brother here. And he, he, if, if ever there was a moment that I was struggling, he would throw me on his shoulder and run with me. And he, he would sit down next to me at night time and say, if you want to get home, I'll, I'll put you on my shoulder and you'll be home by morning. You tell me, you tell me. And he just did anything he could. He, he, would, he would run, at the, when we'd get into village, he'd run to the next camp and buy me food, Coke, a small Coke or, or twisties or little bananas and run them back to me just so I could have that little bit of a surprise or something. And I, I learnt that we all need to be Mac at some point. I want to be Mac. I want to be that person that helps the person next to him. But we all need to be me too and comfortable with that, that we're, we're going to shift in and out of those roles for the rest of our lives, helping and being helped. And I think that if you embrace that, you get a lot more joy out of it as well. And not guilt, not pressure, but just knowing that it's okay. It's okay to be helped and it's it's powerful to help people. That family support is extremely powerful too. And we mentioned your parents before, Glenn and Jackie, and I've known them for uh, quite a few years now and uh, I've even stayed at their place actually. We camped out at their farm at Karkor. 
So I yeah. <laughs> so yesterday I uh, picked up the phone and I called your parents and I wanted to ask them. I wasn't looking for any dirt or any goss. So I've got plenty of that. I called your parents and I asked uh, if they, because they've heard you interviewed quite a lot over the years and uh, been a part of some of the interviews. And I said, is there anything that you wish people would ask Kurt? Or is there anything that you have always wished Kurt would speak about? And I put your parents on the spot, so they they didn't have much time to think about it. But your mum started to rattle off some things that she remembered. And she remembers that when you were younger, you asked her the question, Mum, what does it feel like to walk around on your legs? Yeah. And uh, and your mum said, well, Kurt, you know how you use your arms a lot. It's like that, but except we sort of walk around. So it's the same as how you use your arms to get around and that's what it feels like to get around on your legs. And she said to me, oh, Robbo, I don't know if that was the right answer, but that's all I could come up with. And I said, I think that's a great analogy. And uh, if he hasn't asked the question since then, you obviously answered it really well. And then, sorry. Sorry. Could you imagine how much she was shitting herself when I asked her that? Can you imagine? Uh, That's the one thing that I'm always impressed with when I think back about being a kid is how much they backed themselves. Like they'd never experienced disability before. They had no idea what was going on around them, but they backed themselves that they were doing the right thing. And mum sat there, she would have let me as a toddler crawl away from the house over bloody fences, rabbit and 10K away from home and went, it's the right thing to do. He's with his siblings. He needs to feel like he's a member of that that group. And I got an able-bodied young kid, a toddler, a three-year-old. And it's going to be bloody hard to see him walk away from me in those settings and could you imagine your little kid looking up to you and going what's it like to walk and you just backing yourself that you got the right answer and doing it gee it's just always impresses me old old Jacqueline she's and then the old and the old fella they 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 went into some really unfamiliar terrain and just always just did what they felt was right. Well, off the back of that, we so your mum and I spoke for a little while and then she said, I'll put you on to Glenn, Robbo, and ask him the question. He said, he said, he, he always wondered, he said to me that you never put them through pain. You never put them, you never made them feel pity or blame or anything like that. And he said, Robbo, I've always wondered if it ever went through Kurt's mind when he was younger why me? If he ever thought, why me? No, well, they never allowed me to. I think if they did have these hesitations that something was wrong with me, they bloody didn't let me know. So there was no, there was never anything, there was never any moment that I thought I was broken. They, they always made sure that I was pretty comfortable with myself. And like I said, it was almost, a, it was almost this privilege and there was an honour to be a part of my family. I felt like they, yeah, they were, there was, there was never any reason to reflect on myself in a negative way at all because, you know, like you, know, you just were told and you assumed that you just backed it and you backed yourself. You were, you were who you were and, you know, be the, be the strongest you can be, be the fastest you can be or whatever that may be, but get in there and have a crack and see how it goes and you don't. why reflect on stuff you can't change just find your way and it's a powerful mentality that's got you through uh, many 
I find it weird because they created it. You know what I mean? Like they, they're the ones that did it. I'm just running off the platform that they give me. So um, I probably say that so they can take the blame. <laughs> well, uh, you can say what you want because they're not going to be listening to this podcast because I also, they said, your dad said, what is it, a broadcast? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, you guys don't have a smartphone? He said, no, Robbo, we don't. He said, I don't know what you're doing, but we'd like to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> so they've been amazing support network for you, obviously. Family, community, very important to you help structure your life and your your resilience now you're sort of and we talked about you being an advocate for disability you're also you've created a Kurt Fernley school in Africa is that right it's a school within a school so it's a it's a setting within a school about it's in the Reuben Center in Nairobi and when I first went over there we were getting about five uh, kids with disabilities into the school for a few hours a week to receive a feed mainly um, to talk to their parents because it's seen as a bit of a shame on the family if disability is brought into it and a lot of it is placed on the burden as the, on the mother as the person who has brought this shame on the family. So often they find that the mother's maybe doing the job of raising this kid with disability on their own as well. So there were kids that were being used as beggars because disability in the child can be seen as a better it can be seen as a, a way to gain income for the family where if we were able to provide a kilogram of flour to get them in, we can assess their disability, we can find out if there's any means to uh, increase the quality of life there. And now there's a, a, a room, four walls and a roof and, yeah, I think it's up to something like 27 kids who are getting five days a week education. Um, and I think that's something that I would... I'm going to progress with more once I have more time on my hands because at the moment it's keeping kids alive and giving them base knowledge. But it's you always think there's schools in the developing world, some of them are sledgehammers and some of them are scalpels. Some of them, some of them are providing life. It's the sledgehammer for as many people as you can, you can provide. Um, others are these scalpels that are, that are creating these endless opportunities for the for for less people because it's not it, the dollars that you're able to work with isn't infinite and they are very finite the people with disabilities across the world who need help feels infinite so it's always this balance between what are you providing? Are you providing endless opportunity for this person with a disability to find tertiary education and become leaders in their community? Or in this instance, are you just providing life for that member of the family? Are you providing the ability for them to go to a, an education facility with their siblings to feel a little bit more normality? And I would like... I would like to see Ruben turn or the, the Kurt Fernley Centre turn from that sledgehammer at some point, providing life to kids and basic education to the scalpel, to giving a platform within that centre to create a leader out of that community. Brilliant. Now, Kurt, we've seen you with our Australian Prime Minister. We've seen you struggling with the, the kids in Nairobi that we just spoke about and also in Papua New Guinea. 
We've seen you with the Queen of England just recently too, with your time over there. And you've been with kids in the community like in Walgett uh, and Western New South Wales. What what are your beliefs that allow you to fit in in such a, an array of communities and have your beliefs shifted over time as you step into these communities and you're exposed to them? Uh, mate, the idea that we're all equal, you know, we are all equal, whether you're part of the royal family, I need, you know, I need to, whether you're speaking to the Queen or someone at the Carcourt pub, you, you should be valuing who they are. Um one of one of my most lingering memories is um, is actually in Yarmouk refugee camp in Damascus in Syria, and I got to spend time with kids in their families, beautiful kids, beautiful kids, and their families. And they took me home. And they fed me the food that was amazing. But I'm sure that they would have had quite limited options. But they just give me everything and made me feel so welcomed and these kids not just kids with disabilities we worked with those kids and then tried to get them in the mainstream setting and we spoke to a lot of educators about making sure that kids are out there and there was a bit of pushback in the beginning about they don't want to be part of the sport lesson or this lesson but then when I get in there and I'm engaging and I'm showing how it's done we did win some we win some bloody some battles there and then and then tanks roll through the area in the first part of the civil war happening in Damascus. And I have no doubt that none of those kids are with us. There's no way. That, that village, Yarmouk, was destroyed immediately. And those beautiful kids who have as much value as, as Harry to live a life aren't here anymore. And as much value as the future royals... <laughs> And and that's gone. I think I I don't know, mate. I just I think that there taught me a fair bit about just the reality of life that we all have all of these values and all of this value to give to community and each other. But we won the lottery because of where we're born that we get to live even. The, the, hell, I won the absolute jackpot. I, uh, I'm born in a place, not only in a place, but in a time where I am just more able than what any person in my community will have ever been able to be. And I, I don't know, mate. I, I, I just think that that was a bit of a pivotal moment for us at some point because I, I just saw these kids and I, they're just such beautiful young kids and they had so much to to give to all of us and they're gone now and I don't know mate I just no matter where you go from here on in no matter where I find myself from here on in I'm just going to try and do try and help people really try and try and make people realize or assist them into where they're meant to be or who they're meant to become and it shouldn't be your last name that dictates that it shouldn't be your bank account it should be that you're a you're a valued human and we should be trying to look after you and yeah don't know shit way of answering it but i think that when you started talking about when about the development developing community and why I engage with kids who are vulnerable, Syria left a fair mark on me.
And you spoke about value and your values. You're a man who lives very true to his values, congruently, a very strong person of integrity. And I'm what, sure. Uh, I'm sure after a few beers, I cross them every now. And then. <laughs> <laughs> you still reflect on them, <laughs> but you're what I've seen in you in terms of shift and your belief systems change and shape stronger. I would say is since the birth of your son Harry. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. One hundred percent. I want him to be a good person, and that's at the end of the day, that's all. I want him to find value and passion and um, just be a good, decent person who cares about the people around him, who wants to make the world and his community a a better place, wherever that may be. And that is an absolute now. What's your biggest challenge ahead of you, do you think, in regards to allowing that person to shape his own beliefs Mate, just not mess it up i don't know he's already showing his own independent streak kids are kids are, he's creating his own personalities and you can see he's creating his own little value system and he's just he's geez, he's got me wrapped wrapped around mate I even took him for a run around the athletics track the other day and he said to me a few times i'm I love you, Dad. I love you very much. And he's only just starting to really realise that and and how much it makes people feel so good when he says that. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just hope that I hope that I show the right pathways and what do they say you, you, the major things you can pass on to kids is your habits and how you treat people in the direct vicinity of where you are how you treat waiters how you how you talk to people when you leave your house how you greet people when you're walking down the street i hope that i hope that those parts i've i've, I've succeeded in but mate it's all a, it's all a hope also that you just don't mess it up really that fear motivator I think you're leading a pretty good example at the moment. For the moment, for the moment. Uh, he's the one that decides that, though. We don't get the chance to decide whether or not we're good parents at the end of the day. It's the it's the, 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 the recipient of that parenting that looks back and decides whether or not it was a success or not. I think he'll be, he'll be a good advocate for disability too. I was just thinking uh, randomly with your coach, Andrew Dawes, that you mentioned before and his son, we were, he introduced me to his son a few months ago and Andrew Dawes, he said, oh, this is, this is my mate Robbo and, and he's Kurt's mate and he looked at me and he said, you're not in a wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> so he's already a young guy just exposed to the normality of people being, you know, a lot of dad's mates are in wheelchairs, a lot of Kurt's mates are in wheelchairs. And He said it, for, he said it the other day. What did he say? Um, uh, we got a new babysitter in and he was having a conversation with her and he looks up at her and Sheridan's still in the room and I've just left the house and he goes, my daddy's in a wheelchair. <laughs> and she goes, oh, yeah, 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 yes, he is. And, he, and she goes, he gets around pretty fast, doesn't he? And he goes, yes, he's like Blaze. Blaze from um, Blaze and the Monster Machines. You, it's when you're a, a parent of a toddler, they're obsessed with this TV show, Blaze in the Monster Machines. Anyway, he thinks I'm AJ from Blaze because I I get around in a, a, a machine and uh, I don't know. He, he has such a different approach to life and to, 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 
to disability or wheelchairs than what I would have had as a kid with a disability growing up. It's just so much, it's so much of it has been around him. He's had Reed or JG staying here for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, other, other wheelchair races. He's just so, just, yeah, is what it is. Hey, yeah, my dad's in a wheelchair. <laughs> Yeah, isn't yours? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Now, Kurt, you've written a book called uh, Pushing the Limits and for everyone listening, I'd highly recommend that uh, they jump on and grab a copy. I was going to suggest that we could do, uh, if people that are listening to this and want to get a copy and we can create a, a code word called impact, maybe you could write a, a special little message and uh, sign the book for them. How does that sound? Sounds good. Sounds good. So for everyone listening, we'll uh, point you in the right direction. We'll have it in the show notes where you can get Kurt's book. Uh, We'll wrap things up shortly, but I'm a man of action and I want your advice uh, on what specific action our listeners can take today to become more impactful in their lives and in their communities. Uh, Intent and action. So look, Think about something that you want to do and uh, so that intention, though it's not enough, take that first step and nothing nothing that leaves an impact is created in a second. It's created over making that action every day for decades and but really having a clear idea of what it is that you're trying to do. We've got a visitor. Your lovely wife Sheridan has just walked in. Do you want to say hello, Sheridan? <laughs> no, but hello. All right, so we're almost uh, ready to wrap it up. Before we do, I've got a little something that I want to give you, Kurt. This is a T-shirt, and I think you're aware of our uh, Life Tees campaign. Now, this one is from Brandon Stark, who's an able-bodied high jumper, and his charity that he's chosen that he donates 100% of the profits to is called Souls for Souls. And I thought of you and thought that these people donate worn shoe, partly worn shoes that go to kids in need and there might be some of the kids in Nairobi that are actually receiving their shoes and there's some uh, communities around Australia too, mate. So I wanted to give you that. Thanks, Big Fella. To say and thank at, you. At some point we will have a Kurt Fernley tea to talk about in the next uh, in the coming months or, or year. Oh, look yeah, at that. Yes. I love it. You've heard <laughs> it firsthand, people. Keep an eye out, keep an ear out for the Kurt Fernley tea. All right, quickly, uh, two-part question. Where can our listeners learn more about you and on social media and also how can I and everyone else help you on your mission? Uh, I think that firstly, uh, t- Twitter is by far my most convenient, at Kurt Fernley. I also dabble in Instagram and kind of in Facebook. Um, or you can jump online and find out more info at kurtfernley.com if you'd like to read a, a book uh, you can contact us through that website as well. Brilliant. And shoot us an email at pushingthelimitsbook at, uh, at gmail.com. Um, and we'll have all that linked up. How can we help you on your mission? My, uh, stay tuned. Okay. Stay <laughs> tuned. The mission at the moment is to get to Commonwealth Games. Have a solid crack at finishing up the point A end of that field. That, unfortunately, that... I can't do with the uh, with with everyone uh, everyone who who has been there. That's something that I got to do. After that, my world will expand dramatically, and I'll be uh, I'll be begging for people to come on that journey with me. 
All right, we're going to wrap it up with the fast five questions. I haven't actually told you about these, so don't give yourself too much time to think about it. I'm just going to uh, ask the question and see what rolls off your tongue. What's one habit you wish you could change? Wish I was cleaner. <laughs> I heard your wife laughing in the background there. Yeah. She agrees. Yeah, I'm what- a grub and I smell bad. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you feel absolutely pumped and exhilarated and energised? Uh, look, I still get it out of racing. It's pretty awesome. It's um, yeah, it's there's something wild about being a part of something where you're terrified. You know, you you you're utilising everything that you have: fear, anxieties, uh, uh, joy. You know, there's something really, really amazing about that experience, especially especially if you do well at it. Have you ever washed a dog? Yes. Yes. Rarely. Rarely. But yes. Simple. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, again, you're not the you're not the sum in the numbers in an exam. You're the the person who you are. Your determination. Your your approach to life. That's what's important. And what are you most grateful for in your life right now? A family. Uh, life is life is worth living. Um, because it's incredible, it's amazing, it's a bright, uh, just fun-filled world out there. And don't 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 let anyone tell you otherwise. But having uh, ha- having the love and support of the people around me, and and you know, it's just it, it makes it even more beautiful and even more meaningful. Kurt Fernley, you're a legend. You're a resilient and inspirational bloke and I'm extremely grateful you could uh, share all your passion and wisdom with us today. Thanks for having me back in your family home. No problems, big fella. Boom. What an awesome journey Kurt has had and what a humble human he is. I feel like we just scraped the surface. So now that he's revealed his story, we'll definitely be getting him on again soon to teach us ways to become more resilient and tools to help us all crawl through the mud in our lives. Check out the show notes for all Kurt's resources, including the email address, to get your copy of his book. Cherish your family, friends, and community, and don't ever hide from asking for help. If you like this episode, please jump onto your podcast app and give us a five-star review. This helps immensely for me to be able to continue delivering value to you. It doesn't matter what app you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes Podcast, whether it's Podcast Addict or Stitcher or whatever it is. You guys subscribing and downloading each episode is what keeps this podcast alive. And also, please share with your friends, your family, your community, and everyone you believe will benefit from this podcast. Don't forget to give me your feedback on what you loved and what you want to hear more of, so what value I can help bring into your reality. Reach out to us on social media, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Life for Excellence. That's at L-I-F-E-F-O-R-X-L-N-S. And you can also find us at yourlifeofimpact.com. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.